But I do believe that each person, their actions really, truly do matter. No matter how big or how small, I really am that person. And I have to believe that for the sake of humanity. And if we all contribute in a small way, then there can be actual change. And for me, the idea of a daily activity means that we're not ignoring it, nor are we shaming ourselves. You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudas Israel in Hendersonville, North Carolina. And the tree that I like the most would have to be an aspen tree. I'm Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University, and a tree that I really like is the rainbow eucalyptus tree. I didn't know that tree existed until I went on a family vacation to Hawaii and saw them there and was like, how is this real? Well, I'm Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and my favorite tree right now is probably the box elder, which seems like a pretty fairly normal tree until you cut it open and the inside grain looks like it's on fire and it's the coolest thing to work with. My name is Adam Pryor. I teach at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. My both favorite and least favorite tree is the elm tree in front of the house that we recently bought. So it's not like a species of tree. It is a specific tree (laughs) that is dying from the inside out. And it is a tremendous amount of money to pay someone to take down a tree out of your yard. It is quite possibly the ugliest tree known to humankind. Ian Benz, associate professor of elementary science education at UNC Charlotte. And I'd say right now my favorite tree is a live oak. I was talking about my time at LSU just a little while ago and LSU's campus is covered in live oak trees and they are stunning. When it's a beautiful day out and it's not too hot and you would walk along that campus, it was just so relaxing and absolutely stunning. So that's my favorite tree. I'm allergic to oak tree pollen. (laughs) Oh. And I grew up there. It was not a relaxing experience for me. Oh, you did grow up in Louisiana, didn't you? I forgot that. That sounds like such an Adam thing. Yeah, it does. (laughs) Ian, thank you so very much for sharing something that meant so much to you. It could have killed me. So, uh... (laughs) I'm just saying you're not you're not telling the whole story about the like like fields of things covered in yellow when it drops pollen. Yes, but it's still so pretty. Uh, I feel suspect. So are poppy fields. <laughs> so the reason I asked this question, bringing us to today, is because as we're talking about our emotional connection to the climate crisis, I thought it would be really important for us to be able to look at something in nature and find appreciation and find the thing that brings us to nature. And the reason I started with the aspen tree is I grew up in Colorado and Colorado along the front range. So 
for anyone that's familiar with that region, Colorado Springs, Denver, Boulder, that whole part. And there aren't very many different varieties of trees there. And I'm sure someone is going to tell me how wrong I am. But as a person that doesn't know anything about trees, I saw pine trees and I saw aspen trees. And I'm sure there's lots of different pine trees, but I really just saw a pine tree and an aspen tree. And there's there aren't deciduous trees there for the most part, um, with the exception of the aspen. And there is just something beautiful about watching these aspen trees grow together. It's rare to have a single aspen tree because they are, they're social trees. They, they join their root system together. They, uh, it really is a, uh, a unit rather than a standalone. I think that's what was really appealing to me. And also, frankly, what's a little bit scary that if one of them gets diseased, they're all going to be affected. They might not all die because of that, but they will all at least be affected. But there's also just this amazing part in the mountains, in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado during during the autumn season, where the aspen trees turn from green leaves to gold. Like an actual, like you look like the entire mountainside is coated in gold plating and it's phenomenal. And then you realize how delicate the the ecosystem really is. So that's that's why I wanted to, to start there. And that's why my tree. So I think it was really apt, Adam, that you talked about an elm tree that was uh, rotting from the inside out. where And then causing a tremendous eyesore for you. <laughs> it's hideous. Because on, on the outside, you know, prior to its rotting, on, it looked fine. Right uh, up until it it showed its issues, but then you realize that it's really it's it's dead inside, and and what that says about our environment. Also coming, I didn't intend for this to be all about trees, especially since I'm so not knowledgeable. But apparently, trees have been in my life a long time. In Colorado, there's pine beetles, which destroyed thousands upon thousands of trees and it wasn't just Colorado it was all it was all these beautiful pine trees up and down these forests and in order to stop it because it was such a deadly beetle they would kill live trees to to stop this and then what do you do with all this wood so and then what do you do with this rotten wood so there was there's all this artwork and all these furnitures that use beetle kill pine as as art and as furniture and it's it's gorgeous and that's sort of one way that we've figured out how to deal with deal with all this wood without it contaminating other things well rachel have you have you seen these um these beetle eaten pines how they look after they've been attacked oh up close up close they have they have for those of you who don't they have this kind of beautiful blue streaking throughout because of the way that the beetles, like the the chemicals the beetles uh, excrete Excrete. as they eat Mm -hmm. it. And so you end up with what looks like something that's been like stained professionally. And it's gorgeous. They're, they're beautiful and um, unfortunate and tragic at the same time. You know, we have something similar with, with like spalted wood when a certain type of fungus gets, gets into it. And, um, 
enhances the grain, but in so doing, you know that it's dying. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. it happens a lot with, with maple and other sugary woods that yeah. um, the more unhealthy it is as it dies, the more beautiful the wood ends up being afterwards which is probably a sermon, but is probably not at all totally on, a sermon. on track with what you're talking about. <laughs> it is I don't want to derail track. your point before you get to it. I haven't gotten to it, so there's nothing to derail. So I think you're, 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 on, you're on target there. But yeah, so again, there will be pictures in our show notes of this, of this wood, which is why people have made it into art, because it really is so beautiful. And there is something almost existential about death being gorgeous, which is not the conversation today. The conversation today (laughs) is how to prevent uh, the disasters that we are recognizing and feeling this apocalyptic doom of our climate crisis. And the reason I frame it in, in that way is because it can feel super overwhelming. It can feel for, uh, for those of us that aren't, politicians or aren't really renowned in our fields of climate change, that we're just a person trying to live on this earth and trying to leave it better than than we have it currently. And how do we do that? And as we talked last week, the overwhelming majority of us like, like status quo. So how do we make how do we make it doable? Uh, there's this idea of, well, which camera should I buy? It's like the camera that you'll use. If you have this really fancy, expensive camera that you keep in its perfect case and it makes the best pictures, but you never take it out to take the pictures, then it's not useful. Right. And so, which is why so many pictures are now taken with our, our phones and phone cameras have gotten that much better because they realize that people are actually taking pictures with them as opposed to these fancy, you know, Nikon or Canon cameras, which again are f- superior in, in most ways. But if you don't use them, then it's not helpful. So when we look at our climate crisis, our climate crisis, all these ideas of, you know, props to Greta Thunberg for taking a boat across the ocean. To, to come speak in America. Dare I say that the overwhelming majority of us don't have the time to make that commitment or even the feasibility of if you need to go from, so Adam, you just made a trip, right? You just made a trip on a plane and it had I felt some, deeply guilty about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's very good of you to feel guilt about it. And I will help you with that. But you kept and even and your and your plane trip had some some layovers and some issues of getting back. Just wasting resources left and right. Jeez, (laughs) man. Right. Oh, Rachel, way to be a good clergy person and pour on the guilt. Thank you. I am trying. I am I am learning from my colleagues, my especially my Christian ones. Um (laughs) Oh yeah, we love guilt. Yeah. We're really, really good at that. Real good into that. Um Jews like guilt in the family. Don't worry. I'll just sit in the dark if you can't change the light bulb. Um, <laughs> but I, but I'm, <laughs> I'm mentioning Adam's trip because he was on a time schedule. And the idea is that rather than getting in a car or taking public transportation, there was a reason that you had to be back at a certain time and the other options weren't feasible. 
And so many of us deal with that. You know, so many of us deal with, well, I live in Hendersonville. There's literally like three buses here. They don't run at night. They don't run on the weekends. That That's like, it's, it's not possible. I love this idea. Take more public transportation. Happily. I work at night. How am I supposed to get home at 10 o'clock at night if there's literally no way for me to do that? So, so I, again, we can look at these big, broad, sweeping changes, but we're going to look at them and go, but I can't do that. Or I choose not to do that in my life because I, I need to pay for the food for my family. And it's not feasible for the rest of my life because it's not, it isn't my end all be all. We're not all in. This isn't the only thing that is my life. Right. And if it is the defining thing that is my life, then absolutely I'm going to go to the ends to make that happen. But I think for most of us, that's not the case. So then we get paralyzed by the shoulds and the guilt. And then we go, well, I really should have done that. And then I did it. Now I'm really guilty, but I'm still living my life in this way, which is adding to the guilt. And then the the paralysis gets even worse. So for me, uh, now, now switching back to my my regular optimistic, you can do it attitude. <laughs> it's finding the things that say I can do this, and having the informed choice of what you can do. Not all of us can afford to go out and buy a Tesla. Not all of us can afford to go mm-hmm. out and even buy a new car at all. Maybe the car you're driving is 20 years old and gets really bad gas mileage, but it's it's all you can afford. And so rather than having the guilt of, you know, woe is me and I'm making the planet worse, saying, okay, I may not be able to change that, but what can I change? that I'll say is I was looking, I was really listening to Zach last week as he was talking about eating crickets. And I love that you can do that, Zach. And I can't at this moment. <laughs> I, I, just, I I couldn't at first too. I couldn't, but you, you decided to make that effort. And then for me, I have that, that tiny little layer of, I don't, I eat biblical kosher, so I don't eat bugs intentionally as a religious thing. I don't eat pork as a religious thing or shellfish, right? That there, that there is an idea, an identity of being Jewish, and, and it indicates what I eat and what I don't eat. So in addition to, you know, bugs feel gross to me, I have a religious component that is, that is very loud. And convenient. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Rely on religion when I must. Um, so I was. I that's was always looking, the first word people say, think of when they talk about kosher law, right? Is convenient. <laughs> exactly. Oh yes, it's very convenient to be able to go into any restaurant and be like, "Oh, that's got pork in it. That's got pork in it. That's got pork in it." Because it turns out bacon is in everything. 
who knew? Who knew? <laughs> and when you have to ask the question, is bacon in your green beans? You know you're in the South. Yep. Be- <laughs> because green beans from where I come from are, are green beans. <laughs> they're just... They're just a vegetable, um, but not here. <laughs> um, this is true. <laughs> and same with baked beans. Like pretty much any vegetable comes with its side of pork. Vegetables um, aren't worth eating unless there's bacon in it. I, I hear this. <laughs> um, turns out I like them just as vegetables. <laughs> so, so, so then I was looking at, okay, but you you kept hounding this idea of of beef and that that really and how really bad it is as they're belching and they're farting and just all their processes are bad. So I was looking into that a little bit and I came across this idea of the once a day vegan or the once a day vegetarian. And it says, you know what? Um, rather than rather than having every meal be that sort of Midwestern concept of a meal is a, a vegetable, a starch and a protein. And that protein is an animal protein saying, OK, well, maybe there's one meal where that's not the case, where you say, I don't need animal protein in this meal or two meals where you say, I don't need animal protein in this meal and and making a change there. So that so that's one thing that I I have been working on and for me the protein that I then often will go to is something that's not a red a red meat and say okay well what about a poultry meat or what about fish and and looking at the carbon balance that way and saying okay well instead of having red meat seven times a week um which honestly if you look at and this, the the actual statistics will be on our show notes. Uh, if you look at beef producers of America, they want you to have beef in every meal. And if you look at the dietary plate that the U.S. government gives us, the USDA is telling us, it tells us that we should be having five ounces of meat a day. And that, that feels, um, it feels like they're, they're working together, maybe. Um, what so are you telling me that the United States government <laughs> is working with large corporations in order I, to make money? I'm sorry and to they shock you. Don't have our best health interests in mind. I'm, I'm going to need to agree with this. I'm going to need to censor this episode pretty harshly. <laughs> yes, this is I, not I'm, okay. You are knocking our major sponsors here. Okay, I, <laughs> right. This episode is brought to you by the U.S. government. <laughs> <laughs> So th- so that is um uh, that's one thing that I've been doing. And so I want to ask each of you before I give some other things, what is one thing that you're doing in your day-to-day life that that can ameliorate or change how you're dealing with this climate crisis? That is not a rhetorical question. <laughs> so for me, so growing up in, in Germany, it was really nice to have the accessibility to public transportation that was pretty much reliable. So one thing that being back there in the fall of 2018 for the study abroad trip I did, I really did enjoy not having access to a vehicle and having to solely rely on either uh, the bus or the train or walking. 
you know, I, I, most, a lot of people there use bikes. I didn't have access to a bike. If I did, I would have used it. Now, when my family came, I did get a car because it just made our transportation easier because that's just what we're used to. Right. But there are many times where I, I really, and I thought I've felt this way for a long time, but especially since then, it's kind of, uh, reignited this this hope in my mind, I guess, about I really wish our public transportation system would become more reliable. You know, I, I really did enjoy just jumping on the train and going places. And, you know, I was able to kick back and read or do work or something like that. And, you know, so when you have a system in place that you can plan around, it made life, it made it easier than here where it's, you know, at least where I'm at in Charlotte, it's not as easy to plan around as it is in a country like Germany. Right. But, but that being, that being said, you are still in a, a a decent sized metropolitan area. I mean, I don't know how, how large Charlotte is, but that's not the case for the majority of America. Right. Right? And you are even in a place that has it and it's still not great. Right. But those are, so I mean, it's better. It just doesn't go uh, as far. Right. It just it's not as easy. Right. And I'm certain there could be people out there listening go, no, I think it's easier than, than you think it is. And, and but just the you know reliability of it. Mm-hmm. OK, so that's something that you wish you could do. But yeah. given the um, infrastructure of your city and frankly, much of the United States, that's not something that you're able to really do on a day to day basis. So you answered the antithesis of my question. <laughs> so. Yeah, so what? I guess a big change I've done over the last several years is um, I used to print out stuff to read it. Mm-hmm. You know, so like articles I would get, things I would need to mark up on, I used to always print them out um, mm-hmm. and read it. And I spent you know time teaching myself how to not do that anymore. And so now I rarely will do that. Even when I'm taking notes and meetings and stuff like that, I try not to bring a pen and paper with me because I don't want to waste the paper. One thing I still need to work on, obviously, is uh, sticky notes. If you saw my office, you would say I've got <laughs> sticky notes everywhere, but I love sticky notes. But I feel like I do a much better job with like that type of conservation. So if I can interject real quick. I, I read a book last year called uh, We Are the Weather, uh, Saving the World Begins at Breakfast, I think is the subtitle, by uh, Jonathan Safran Foer. Uh, and it was the best book that I have ever read about climate change and the problems and the solutions and all of that. It is what inspired me to change my diet and to actually make a difference. And the thing that struck me the most in it is how humble he was and how open and vulnerable he was in admitting his own lack of, of action. Because this is the sort of thing that has crippled me for so long is I have these convictions. I know these things, uh, you know, in my head, I know what I'm supposed to do and I know that it's supposed to be a big deal and I still don't do it because it's not convenient and I don't see the immediate effects. Like right now I am on the, the Pennsylvania turnpike and there's snow out here. So I know that you know, climate is change is real, but in my immediate uh, situation, it's cold. And so, uh, you know, my world is not on fire right now. And so I don't have the same 
level of, of emergency. He, he mentions that when, um, when mothers see their baby trapped under a car, like they can summon this superhuman strength to lift the car off of their babies. But to, to, to then have the, the motivation to do little things that are inconvenient to help that child develop through their life is so much harder to do. We as a species are so good at responding to an immediate crisis and so bad at responding to an indeterminate crisis. You know, this is why when I was when I was a kid growing up in the evangelical world, they used to always say in chapel services, like, if you died today, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? And they would tell stories about people who died on their way home from places like this immediacy, like you could die right now. You need to make a right decision right now. Because if you just said like, yeah, one day you may or may not go and you may or may not go to heaven and who knows. There's this is indeterminacy. We don't make decisions based on that. And so I, I, I can sense a kind of timidity and trepidation because we all agree that this is an issue and we are all equal hypocrites in not being active in it. Um, so I, I tried to bring this up in an article I wrote a little while ago for The Orbiter that like, I know how important this is, but yet I still drive places. Right. I still don't do what I'm supposed to do. I still sometimes throw away things that could be recycled. But, you know, if I have to put it in my car and take it home with me to recycle it, I might not do it. We are all still hypocrites. And so we don't need to do any kind of like um, green shaming or anything or to feel like <laughs> you are being green shamed for not being um, 100% sustainable, compostable, uh, mm-hmm. crunchy kind of a, a hippie person. Like, it's okay to not be doing the things you wish you were doing. I'll answer your question, Rachel, but mm-hmm. then then I want to pick at your question. Uh-huh. Here it comes. So in a very sort of like mundane, but also basic way, uh, I live eight blocks from where I work, um, which I know is not the deal for like most people, right? But it's a small town. Right. I mean, it's a mile square, well, four square miles around. So at most, if you, you know, go diagonally across it, you're talking like two miles, two and a half. But Pythagorean um, theorem. Thank you. Yep. There you go. Sorry. I was, I was rounding down. Um, Right. So it's, it's eight blocks for me to get to, to work. There's, there's pretty much no weather pattern save for tornado, (laughs) which in any case, the town shelter is actually the hallway that my office is in. <laughs> so I probably should come here anyway. Um, that would prevent me from getting to work on foot or by a bicycle. Um, since I like riding bicycles, that's particularly appealing, right? So almost without fail, I don't drive a car. Because one... My wife won't let me and she doesn't like it when I drive. 
for a variety of reasons. It's really better for everybody. Um, <laughs> but also because like I, I really don't have to, right? I mm-hmm. can take the 15-minute walk, which is highly enjoyable, and just do that. And I know intellectually that that is a better choice environmentally. I know that it makes the most sense. And yet when I don't walk, it's generally because hit the fan in the morning trying to get everybody out the door and I'm just running late and I have to get to that meeting. Yeah. And yet at the end of the day, I'm also pretty intellectually aware that um, if I'm just 10 minutes late, no one dies as a result of my job. Not in your job. Yeah. No, no. Like, I mean, I could still walk and it would be okay and it wouldn't be that big a deal. Mm-hmm. So I say all of this to say like, yes. So my answer to your question is I, I walk to work. That's that's probably the thing that I do on a like daily basis that is the most sort of like conscious thing that I do environmentally. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh-huh. right, there's this element that I think is is sort of part of Zach's response as well that looks at an issue like climate change and we immediately recognize that personal responsibility isn't enough to deal Mm -hmm. with it. And I think when I think about that sort of sense of crippling and paralyzing fear, right? Like those moments where I don't walk to work, where I feel the pressure of being on time for my colleagues to be respectful because I chastise students about things like that um, is is part of this set of social pressures in a very mundane way that affect the way we think about how we deal with climate issues, right? And so one of the things that's most fascinating to me about climate change is we, we want to move to this, what's the thing that I do, that I do, that makes this better, while simultaneously being pretty aware of the fact that nothing I do is ever going to be enough or really matters. Mm. Mm. Hi. Here we go. I knew I knew you'd love that part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kendra, this may be a good time for the little fight, 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 fight. Yeah. <laughs> Because I have a response too, but I'm kind of like waiting for the fight to happen and then I I can give my bit. (laughs) Should I get some popcorn? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm staying out of this one. I sense a running theme. (laughs) So Kendra, I do do also want to hear from you, but let me me address what Adam was just saying. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, as, As I think our personalities and our ideologies might indicate, I have the opposite idea. Well, your optimism is unbounding. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry my optimism shakes your foundation of pessimism. Well, Um, fair. And fatalistic attitude of whole existential demise. Um, But I I do believe that each person really, their actions really, truly do matter. No matter how big or how small, I really am that person. And I, I, I have to believe that for the sake of humanity. And because I, I also feel like the snow that Zach is currently experiencing, right? One individual snowflake 
okay, you you recognize it. You go, oh, it's cute and it's small. And, you know, you hear the sound of music song in your head. Mucho spare our listeners from singing. (laughs) But snowflake upon snowflake upon snowflake causes an avalanche. And and if if we all contribute and we all make this actually our idea in a small way, then there can be actual change. And for me, the idea of a daily activity means that we're not ignoring it, nor are we shaming ourselves. And and that if it's all right, that's sort of what the, the recycling industry wanted us to do is whether or not recycling is actually helping the planet is questionable. It, it really is because of all the resources it uses to make that happen. And where does the recycling actually go? And perhaps our, our better bet would just to be using reusable things rather than recycling disposable things. But it makes us aware. It makes us intentional about our actions. And if each of us can be intentional about our actions, then perhaps we can see systematic change. Um, So when we go to the polls, when we make decisions at the grocery store, when we have conversation with people, it'll start seeping in in those ways. And maybe that's not going to be fast enough. And maybe that's the problem that we're looking at, is that the time scale, it's not fast enough. But I refuse to believe refuse, flat out refuse to believe that each one of us doesn't have an ability. And and I want to, I, I, I think many people are familiar with it, the starfish story, but I, I'll give like the three sentence version. Um, that, I'm sorry, I was, I, please give the three sentence version. <laughs> yes, Adam. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I was thinking about a, a, a student that I failed that used the starfish story as their conclusion. Ah, yes. This sort of illustrates probably where we're in a different spot. Probably. Probably. You would. Uh, (laughs) So for those that don't know the story, it basically goes like this. It's morning time. There is uh, a small, there's a person walking along the beach. It's often told that the person is a small boy. Um, You can choose its age. And someone, and he's doing something, but an old man Uh, can't figure out what he's doing. Old man gets a little bit closer, sees that the little boy is picking up a starfish and throwing it back in the water. The old man looks around and goes, but this entire beach is completely littered with starfish. You're never going to save everyone. Why are you doing what you're doing? And the little boy responds by picking up another starfish and flinging it back into the ocean. And he sa- and the, the old man goes, but it doesn't matter. And little boy picks up another one and he sa- throws it back into the ocean. He says, but it mattered to that one. Right. And that's a nice optimistic story. So so before we get over to Kendra, Adam, tell me why that this is a, uh, a story worth failing a student over. Uh, the other five million starfish still die. Yeah, they did. But you know what? The one that it didn't die. And if there was everyone on the beach and they were all picking it up, rather than saying, ah, they're going to die anyway, why does it matter? Yeah, except they're not there. And, and, no, no. I, I mean, and I, I say that a little tongue in cheek, right? But but part of this is 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 sort of my my own sense, right, that the, the nature of that argument, right, the nature of the argument in, in the Starfish story, the nature of the argument from personal action is that enough small actions create cataclysmic change that by simply totaling up 
the series of individual personal human actions will reach a solution to something like climate change? And I want to say, I don't think so. I don't think, I think you need a qualitative shift, not just quantitative addition of actions. Yes. And I think that, that, that kind that... of qualitative shift doesn't come from quantitative change. And that's where we, dis- that's where we differ. That I believe that each, each action Right. That the sum of the actions is also the emotional, the non-quantitative pieces where you can go, okay, maybe, you know, maybe this one little action isn't actually going to change the entirety of the world. But now I'm aware of the rest of the world and therefore I'm going to do something from a, a, um, a systematic place and that will change the world. I mean, I'm thinking about our processes of oil usage. We used to use whale whales and their blubber to create oil, which created fuel for things. And then a few people went, perhaps we shouldn't do this. Perhaps whales should be allowed to live and we should find another source. And then we did find another source. And now we're going, huh, perhaps that source of dinosaur fossils is not the best source to use because it turns out it's destroying our planet. So we recognized 150, 100 years ago, that using whales solely for the purpose of fuel was not good. And now we're realizing that using the oil in the ground solely for the purpose of oil is not good. And so now we're saying, okay, what about water and, and solar and wind and all these other purposes? But but it's taking that time to say, I choose not to use whale. Just like Zach is saying, I choose not to eat beef today and I'm choosing crickets instead. Right, that that it's 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 changing. I think what I would, I think what I go. I don't want to sort of sound horrible. I mean, actually, okay. I'm okay with that most of the time. But yeah. I, you know, in in this case, I don't want to sound like I'm like you know horrible negative Nancy. Like there's nothing we can do. I I am on board with the idea that individual changes do create awareness. That that step I can go with. Right. So let's use the little boy throwing his starfish into the sea. Right. The little boy throws his starfish into the sea and in doing the action creates a certain awareness of the importance of other living things. Yes. That is a fundamentally important insight. Great. Continuing to throw the starfish into the sea is a poor use of the little boy's time. Mm. The little Mm. boy should change the structure of his actions and go out and work towards convincing other people to be on the beach, throwing them into the sea because mm-hmm. of the realization that he has made, right? Mm-hmm. Continuing mm-hmm. additive action of throwing the starfish into the sea doesn't create the kind of change the boy wants to see. Okay. So while uh, the boy is nice, I just want to say he's sort of philosophically naive. Okay. This is why the student failed the paper. But, <laughs> right? But but this is where, where, where what I want to say is like, the awareness piece is absolutely essential. And I think we actually are doing a much better job of helping people discover that awareness through these little actions. That, that part of the question I really, really like. To me, the question is, once I have that awareness, now what? And I think continuing small actions is actually paralyzing and problematic. Okay. Kendra. So maybe <clears throat> for the maybe. little boy. Thank you. Thank you for shaking my foundation. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> I guess Sorry, I'll was... share what I do. 
Um, but actually, first, I, I do want to share things that I do and some stories about things my friends do. But I I just want to respond to this fight because I think there's a way in which you both are right and wrong at the same time. <laughs> No, it must be one way or the other. It must be that you have pure, unbridled optimism and hope or that you've fallen into the pit and they put your office in the basement. Those are the choices. That's it. Um, yeah, well, I I would say that um, I I tend to, like, intellectually, I can totally get on board with the idea of, like, yeah, recycling probably doesn't matter that much. Personal actions, like, yeah, we... We can't do this by ourselves. We need like bigger change. But I also do personally and like emotionally believe and try to participate in the small personal actions because I think that while Adam is right that like the little boy could spend his time better than just like spending time alone throwing the starfish into the sea. Yeah, the only pass way- judgment on the little boy, Kendra. Huh? I said, pass judgment on the little boy. Okay. Feels good. Now who's the monster? Um, Yeah. Like while his time might be better spent, the only way that he would realistically convince the old man to pick up starfish and start throwing them into the sea with him is by the little boy himself throwing the starfish into the sea. And I just think there's like a point at which, yeah, it's the quantitative the collective quantitative actions to some extent are not enough, but I think that they can be if you focus not only on the personal action of what you're doing, but adding a a component of peer pressure to your personal action that draws other people in. But I don't think you can just do one or the other. I don't think you can like just do, you know, recycling or whatever. And you can't just like tell other people that they should go out and do something that's going to help climate change. I think you have to be really invested in both the quantitative and the qualitative actions that will like together make the difference because I, it, there's part of me that like similar to the way you phrased it, Rachel, you said like, I have to believe this to like have hope almost about like the future of the world. I, I similarly feel like if I didn't believe that, it's just too (laughs) depressing. Uh, And I also actually believe that it (laughs) makes a difference. Um, But, and so like there are things that I do, for example, to get back to my own personal thing, there are things I do that are probably not that useful, but I do them because I can. They are easily accessible to me. It's built into the city the city's culture here in Boston. Like I have recycling bins in my apartment that like somebody from facilities comes every week to take them out. I don't really have to do anything to like recycle. That's fine. Even though that has continually been uh, like deemed one of the least useful things that we can do because we, (laughs) it's like more like individuals are not going to save the world by recycling, but we need these larger corporations that have, like so much more resources and spend so much more of just like all the things they need to be invested in the personal actions that individuals are doing. So like, I get that, but still 
I think that like large corporations and governments, they make decisions by, I mean, not all the time, but like one of the ways they make decisions is by being peer pressured by larger cultural narratives about what is good and what is right. And so I think that it's not totally naive to be optimistic about how that could make a difference. You just have to be a little bit more strategic about it. And I think... Yeah. So like in the city of Boston, it's really easy for me to do that. It's also really easy for me to get around the city by walking, biking or taking public transit. Um, I don't have a car and I don't need a car. And it would be like more inconvenient for me to have a car because then I'd have to like pay for parking and just like I don't want to deal with that. So it's actually like not virtuous at all that I like do a lot of things (laughs) that are really good for the earth. But it's really just right now in my life, it's easy for me to do that. And there are other buildings on campus that have compostable bins and use compostable silverware for every free meal they offer each week. Um, I have like access to those things. The one thing that I have to be like a little bit more intentional about is buying, uh, like over the last few years, I've started trying to buy more high quality clothing and when that clothing or my shoes wear down to get them repaired rather than just like giving them away and buying something new immediately, which again is also like something that helps me save money, but it's also better, like a better way to reuse things. And I I think that's also not something that's like particularly tremendous in its impact on my individual level, but I am choosing to like put my money into the companies that care about that. And those companies have way more influence Um, in the way that they use resources and advertise than like what I could do in terms of influence. So yeah, I just think that it feels a little bit short-sighted to me to not consider that like you have to have the quantitative and qualitative pieces to the actions that we make. And you can, you can have it all. You can be an optimist and a pessimist. That's the moral of the story. So the realism that we're looking for then, if we were to rewrite our starfish story, is that the old man comes upon the little boy who's throwing one starfish in and goes, wow, that's a really good activity. How can I help? And the little boy, being a little boy, says, I don't know, pick one up and throw it in yourself. And the old man starts doing that and finds the love of the starfish and goes, you know what? I have a different skill set than you do. You keep throwing these in because we need to save this one right now. But I am going to go up out of off the shoreline and I'm going to go tell other people that they can help you And for those that can't help you, I'm going to rally them and show why these starfish are here and we're going to make it so that that doesn't happen. So that we need really what we're looking for is for people to get to know themselves well enough and their skill sets well enough to say, this is this is how I can give in these ways. And we need somebody at every level. We need the crisis management person. 
right? The person who's addressing the immediate need right here, right in front of us. And we need the person who has the contacts and the connections and the organizational skills. And then we need the person who's who's able to physically make the changes. And maybe that person will never touch a starfish, but has made it such that, that the 5 million starfish will live the next time the tide comes in or goes out rather. So you're not really talking about the starfish story as much as you're talking about the, uh, the babies in the river story. Yes. Also the babies in the river story. Yes. <laughs> the one where they're, they, they, this group of people see a baby floating down the river and jump in to save them and then see another baby floating down the river and jump in to save them. And they've got a whole team of people in the river picking up babies out of the river to save them because every baby's life is precious. But at some point somebody says, who on earth is throwing these babies into the river? Maybe we should go up there and take care of them. But like somebody's got to take the baby. You still got to take the babies and, out of the river. Right. But exactly. You the need question both. for me then is how to transform individual action into something that inspires collective action while not cheapening individual action because both are needed. Um, I, th- I think that the individual action piece serves as almost like a, like a sacrament. It's something that we do outwardly that, uh, that shows our desire for inward change. And when we identify it as such, it's, it's something that is an identifying marker. It's, it's a virtue signaling to ourselves and to others. Mm. It's, it's about identity more than it is about, you know, actually fixing the world. Um, but that's a piece that helps to realign our own heart and our own um, mm-hmm. thoughts and ideas and to give us daily constant reminders about the things that we need to do in order to force other people to do the same. I, th- I think I would say, one, clearly uh, a a Patreon gift should be Rachel and I rewriting the Starfish story. Yes. But, absolutely. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, and then uh, getting two, it printed on a dead starfish. <laughs> Correct. Um, but, but, but I think, but I think too is that um, I, when I'm listening right to to Rachel retell the story, right? I this is where I can start getting on board. But I think there are a couple of pieces that I would also add to the story that I, aren't there yet. And one of, I think there there are three, right? So, so one piece of it is that old man needs someone to put in a starfish death tax mm. that will encourage those who don't feel that they should go save the starfish and that that's a virtuous action to still participate, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one piece. Then the second piece that I would look for is uh, a, there, need to, there needs to be a value to, to those folks who are going to say a certain number of those 5 million starfish are going to die. And we need to figure out that that's just going to happen. And we're going to need to f- deal with the reality of that um, because we didn't start fast enough. Right. So that's the other piece of the story that I want in there. And then the third is um, I want this story to take place outside the city of Boston because um, I think what part of what Kendra is pointing to is that part of how people participate in this is that it's easier to make the virtuous choice than the one that's more typical. Yeah. It's easier not to have a car in Boston. The structure is such that you're incentivized to make a better choice environmentally. As much as I would like to say that that individual action will will motivate all of us to actually make substantial changes, there is a 
pragmatic part of me that also says a, a big part of how we encourage people to make better choices is to make the convenient choice that is less environmentally friendly, less, less appealing, yeah, less, less convenient. convenient. Yeah, I think I think you're totally right there. Yeah, I mean, you can you can even look at right now. This is not an environmental thing necessarily, but it is a, a change that happened. How many people, and I really only know America, were smokers, right? Cigarette smokers in the 1940s, 1950s, and it was like. You know, this is this is the best thing for you and it's healthy and you should be doing this. And then it turns out it's really not. But people weren't stopping. So they said, OK, well, now we're going to stop you from doing it in public places. And now we're going to tax it at um, ridiculous prices. And suddenly, not suddenly, but hey, look, people don't smoke as much. So I mean, I but, mean and- but in the scheme of history, right, that was sudden. And I think that's sort of what is exactly. actually hopeful about that story, right? Like I, when I think yes. about climate change, when I think about the actions that I can take, I I want to model that on public health because I think it's one of the very few places where we've had initiatives until pretty recently that have worked <laughs> like very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. In the grand scheme of things, very quickly. And and also from a uh, an individual standpoint, mothers against drunk driving, Right, that that it took that emotional that emotional group. It wasn't somebody who said, "Ah, oh, you probably shouldn't do that." That was like, "Listen, you have killed my child, or my child killed your child, and I have to live with that guilt." Right, that that we need both of those pieces. Kendra, you're not a middle child, right? I'm the oldest. Hmm. I'm I'm confused now because you keep making peace, and I, I I'm disquieted by it, but. <laughs> Yeah, um, I had a confusing role <laughs> as <okay>. an oldest <laughs> child. <laughs> Maybe you had to make peace with other people in the household then. <laughs> um, um, I mean, I think that what y'all are session. discussing, though, it this connects back to like the beginning of our conversation where I think it was Zach's interjection about how like humans are really bad at responding to indeterminate problems, but really good at the immediate like urgent problems that we just have to face. And I think that what you both are talking about now is like bringing in this emotional piece to the stories about like climate change or whatever issue we want to resolve. It's just not enough to share statistics because we know that statistics don't really move people just as these like indeterminate problems are not really that motivating. But what we know does work is making people feel something about Mm -hmm. the problem at hand and either doing that through something personal like your son killed my son or my son killed your son. And that is this personal problem that focuses on loss of a loved one. And it's very easy for like a lot of those people to connect with that particular problem of drunk driving. But I think the other way to like emotionally rally people is to create like moral narratives about like what is good for people, humans. And I think this is where like religious institutions have like played a role <laughs> to really loop it back to the intersection yep. with religion. That's exactly where, where I was going to go. <laughs> yep. uh, religious communities <laughs> have an opportunity to yep. like, create narratives that play with the like moral tinge of climate change. 
and like what that means for the future of not just like humanity, but the communities that we love, the people that we love. And that is not about statistics. It's about like wanting to survive, wanting the people you love to survive. And I think like it's not a question of what is like what's the best or like most efficient way to make change or what we think is the most efficient way to make th- change. Like I would love it if we could just like flash some statistics on a screen and everyone be like, yeah, that makes sense. We're going to change our actions now. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I just, it's not. Best never- Super Bowl ad ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like not really the way it works. It's not, but I think that's that's exactly where I wanted our conversation to go. And as as we're nearing the end of our time, I'm glad we got there. This 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 bridging I, idea of individual change and communal change, and I think are the organizations that we're a part of, religious or perhaps corporate, right? Wherever wherever we might be, um, but especially the religious organizations, that's that can be our piece. That can be our way of of making real change possible because we have we already have the built in emotions. We have a built in value system um, and we just and we have a frankly, we have a built in pool of people that have the ability to do this. So I think that that's where we make this intersection a boulevard, a very large intersection. This has been episode 26 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. As always, if you'd like to support the show, check us out on Patreon or at our website at downthewormhole.com, where you'll also find show notes and all kinds of other goodies. You can also, if you'd like to, leave us a review on iTunes and share this episode all over the interwebs. That is the best way to help us to grow this podcast and the work that we all think is super important. And if you're listening, you probably do too. Or don't. Whatever. I'm not your dad. Just just make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss next week's episode in which Adam helps us to use the creative power of play to find our way through the climate crisis. We get to talk about life on other planets, gorilla gardening, dismantling skyscrapers, reclaiming the American lawn, and Kendra's benevolent dictatorship where she rules with an iron fist and... Vegetables aren't worth eating unless there's bacon in it. <laughs> <laughs>